0: Hi, hello, and welcome, my Force-sensitive friends, to the 57th ever full episode of Holy Star Wars. We're finally back on track this week with releases, and this week, we're diving into one of the first canon novels to kick off the hype towards The Force Awakens back in 2017, Chuck Wendig's Aftermath. Glad to be back on schedule. Sorry for all of the, you know, missing a week and being all quiet and then putting two out at once, but we're on track right now. Chuck Wendig's Aftermath, we'll be looking at that book for a few weeks, but this time we'll be doing it alongside the Gullah Geechee myth of the Buhag. All this through the theme of Aftermath. The premise of Aftermath, the novel, is the remains of the Galactic Empire scrambling together to figure out how to move forward without the Emperor, with the Death Star gone, the second one that is, and the Rebels renewing hope in the galaxy. Hence, the name Aftermath, basically. The Aftermath theme goes beyond just the Aftermath of the Empire, though. It extends to each of the book's characters. The two I want to talk about in particular today, because there are so many that are super interesting in this book, are Nora and Temin Wexley. These two deal with a lot of different kinds of Aftermath over the course of this story, and I think that they're important to get into. Now, something important before going too deep into the discussion is what Aftermath means. I believe that it's very specific. Aftermath is a noun saved specifically for depicting the results of a tragedy or a devastating event. It's specifically negative in its connotation. You would never really use it to describe something that was a a, a purely positive experience. Um, This distinguishes aftermath from consequences, or externalities if you want to be fancy, dramatically, because with consequences there are two different kinds. There are positive and negative consequences. While we usually use consequence, the negative connotation, there's still always a two-sided nature to the word. And the consequence itself is more um, you're, you're, you're almost when you're thinking about the consequence, separating it from the antecedent event, whereas with aftermath, while well, the aftermath of something can be good, I guess. when you talk about aftermath, you're generally talking about the negative impact that an antecedent event brought brought, and wrought and made happen. And so there's, I think, a, a, a good distinction, an important distinction between those two terms. And so in this episode, we're going to be talking about con- not consequences, not something very two-sided, but something particularly negative. We're going to be talking about aftermath. Last week I said it in, on the theme of pain, how nearly every theme we discussed has a duality to it. Well, aftermath's don't really, which make them just as interesting a topic as consequences, which I am confident we will get into another time. Nora went off to join the Rebellion during the height of the Galactic Civil War, leaving Temen behind on their home planet Akiva with his aunts. The aftermath of this decision was Temen's disdain for his mother and being forced to live a far less than pleasant or fulfilling life without his mother. The aftermath for Nora, in addition to abandoning her son and making him disdain her, is having to live with the knowledge that she did this and the struggle to have him forgive her. The emotional scars she receives at war are also an enormous part of the aftermath of war she endures. This dynamic is entirely unique in Star Wars, honestly. Basically, nobody in the Star Wars universe has living parents, and those that do, we don't ever really see them together or in a positive way. I mean, i.e. Ben Solo, <laughs> so getting to bear witness to this intent or or, <laughs> or or Luke and Anakin, Luke and Vader, for that matter. You know, nobody that has parents are ever in good terms with their parents in this in these movies, or they die, or they're dead. So this is a really cool opportunity to be able to see this intense dynamic that honestly, like, (laughs) the more I keep thinking about it, the more I'm just like, wow, we really, really have never gotten to see a, a parent and child in this universe, especially one that, you know, is an adult and went off to war and came back. And so Nora went off to fight in a war her child didn't understand and agree with. And upon returning home, she has to deal with the consequences. Yeah, I just used the word. But with the consequences in the aftermath of having no idea what he has gone through since she left. He barely is under any kind of supervision. He deals with gangsters. He's like a top gangster, practically. Not a parent's ideal situation for their child. She must be absolutely racked with guilt over it all, but the aftermath of Nora's having left for Tenen is that he has zero understanding of why she did. He has no incentive to understand why either, which makes it all the more devastating to me. These two characters have a whole lot of unhealthy relationship. to Tagle now that she's returned from returned home from war and it, it, it aftermath. Again, you know, it comes down to the fact that it is the it is just everything feels so dismal and so awful when you're talking about aftermath. Even if again, you know, you could be talking about consequences. You could be talking about how there's 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 positive things and negative things that come out of this. And and the book shows us that there clearly are, but. If we focus on it from the aftermath viewpoint, it makes everything just feel so much more negative and so much less possible. This week's myth comes from the Gullah Geechee people. The history of these people is actually it's extremely interesting. I very highly recommend reading into them. In short, they are a culture and community that developed in the low country of South Carolina as slaves were brought from there from West Africa to farm rice. Over several hundred years from slavery through freedom into modernity, this people has developed a language, somewhat of a religion, a deep and definitive culture, and so much more due to their relative isolation across all this time. I'm honestly still unsure if different people refer to themselves as either Gullah or Gaethje distinctively, but they are mostly mostly today referred to as the Gullah people, and um, where the names come from is, is somewhat debated, but what's most important is that they mostly refer to themselves as Gullah people, and they live from North Carolina all the way down to northern Florida, primarily con- condensed the barrier islands off South Carolina and the areas on the other side of the river on the mainland. They're so interesting and an extremely important piece of American history to learn about and learn from. So definitely do some more reading on your own. There's several great documentaries about them, lots and lots of information. There's actually uh, only a few years ago. I think it was in 2012, 15, 14, something like that. There was an entire... Um, Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor that was established in the United States um, as part of the National Park Service to help take all different sorts of cultural and and historic sites important to the Gullah people and be able to make them protected lands and make them into places where you can go and learn about these people and um, it's extremely important stuff so Definitely. I mean, also one of the sites is called the Angel Oak Tree, and I was just there recently. And this is where I first started learning about them. It is one of the largest and oldest trees in the world. Uh, well, it's definitely it's one. It's definitely the oldest in the East Coast. This is a total tangent, but honestly, like look up this tree. It is so big, and it's a, it's a live oak. And live, you know anything about live oak trees? They go every direction. They grow in every direction except for up. And they're so funny looking. And you can't see me right now, but I am in such a funny looking position, trying to imitate what this tree looks like. It's like one of my favorite games to play is you know on the count of three, everybody, everybody pretend they're a tree. And whenever I pretend I'm a tree, I pretend to be a live oak because it is my favorite. <laughs> and this is enormous. It's my favorite because of this tree. But anyway, super, super tangent. Check this out. Look up these people. Look up the Gallow. The Geechee and learn about our country's history and the peoples of it because God knows that we're not just homogenous people that came from Europe and called it a day and said we're Americans, hurrah! Like, learn about them seriously. The myth of the boo hag is a folk warning of a creature that wanders into homes at night to mount your sleeping body, suck your breath, and try to steal your skin. Boo-hags are believed to be the spirits of those who died, having lived bad lives, stuck on Earth. The boo-hag never rests and goes about seeking to steal somebody's skin so that they can pass among the living again. They're easily distracted, though, by such things as broomsticks, because they can't seem to walk by one without counting every single bristle. Also, there's a particular color that is found all over the porches and windows of houses in the area called haint blue. It's said to confuse ghosts and spirits. Uh, haint is a ghost and... Gullah Gullah culture, and uh, they're said to help to keep those out because they confuse the the boo-hags, they confuse the spirits, and prevent them from entering your home. If you wake up in the morning feeling exhausted, even though you got a full night's sleep, it's possibly because a boo-hag mounted you to feed on your energy that night. The boo-hag is the aftermath of a life poorly lived. Getting your breath sucked or skin stolen is the aftermath of a house poorly protected. With the aftermath of every tragedy or undesired event, though, comes an opportunity to reflect. I like the myth of the boo-hag because it's simple and very straightforward. There's two kinds of reflections, back to that there's always two sides of everything. Reflecting on what could have been done to prevent the antecedent event, and the reflection on how to move on in the aftermath and prevent something similar or also just bad from happening again. The existence of the Buhag is a reminder to people that if they should live a wicked life, they will be cursed to wander the earth in hopes of feeding off the living to carry on what, what meek barely existence they can. It's actually, thinking about it, it, it's interesting because the two ends touch here. The aftermath of the Buhag's living treachery and the possible antecedent of somebody else's. Nothing be done to help the boohag that already lived a sinful life, but their misfortune should be a lesson to others on how to prevent that from reoccurring in their own lives. It is of course too late for Nora to go back and make things right with Temin in the first place. All that was done was done. What boggles my mind is that instead of learning from her mistake of abandoning him in its aftermath, she doubles down on it. She literally drugs and kidnaps her own child to get him to leave akiva with her I mean Really? (laughs) Drugging and kidnapping your own child whom you already have a strained relationship with? That's what you're going to do to win him back? Well, Nora seems to care much less about how Temin feels than how she feels. And that's just the problem, isn't it? In the aftermath of this war and all it's done to the two of them, the lesson Nora is fixated on is the wrong one, I think. She just regrets that her family had been broken apart and the threat the Empire still poses. She doesn't at all consider her son's personal aftermath of her having left, and has no intention of really doing so. At least, not at the onset, and definitely not from what I remember of this book. The worst part is that she wins in the end. Her ignoring his circumstance is barely reconciled, and he ends up more or less forgiving her. Yes, they stay on Akiva, fulfilling one of his goals, but only to service her larger goal of defending the galaxy. What I fear is that this solace between them is temporary. I mean... To be clear, like I think it's great that Nora, as you know female characters in storytelling never get their way, and it's always about you know a man servicing their goals and blah 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 and that's awful, and I'm really glad that this is not not that kind of story, but look, but you know putting that aside, we can also look at it in terms of their own real selves and unless Nora addresses the obvious tension between her and her son over the aftermath of Nora's leaving, their new rebel squad may have some problems going forward now. I know this may well have been the case. I, I can't imagine they never talked at all, and I admit it's been a while since I've read the book all the way through, and I left it at home, and I wasn't able to really, you know, sift through it in depth this week, but let's look at this in the abstract. The lesson of the Boo Hag is that live—that if we live our best lives, we won't end up one. It's also the lesson that with some broomsticks and some haint blue exteriors, we can protect ourselves from them. These are specific thought-out responses to experience with the boohag. Nora and are need to talk about what happened in detail, how to move forward from it, what are their brooms and paints that will help them feel reassured that they will be safe from recurrence in the future, and what can they do to be better and prevent it altogether? What they learn in the aftermath can only come from discussing in depth and what it is that happened in the first place. Again, I know some of this does happen in the book, but I think the point remains true and I hope to see this relationship and this aftermath explored further in the future. I've still not read Life Debt or Empire's End, so we'll see. In the meantime, I think the lesson is universal. When we go through things that are bad and hard and tragic, we have to look back on them in detail and use that detail to understand how to move forward. It's hard, I know, believe me. Looking at the details of things that happened in the past that we want to forget about is extraordinarily painful and difficult, and no one wants to. But if we don't, we just end up like the New Republic who never learned from the aftermath of the Republic's collapse, or the First Order who clearly learns nothing in the aftermath of the failure of the Empire. Aftermaths are painful but they are rich with lessons on how to both recover and prepare for the future. And I hope that Nora and Temin are able to do that. I hope that we're all able to do that. Of course, as always, this is just my take on it all, and I would love to hear yours. Let us know what you thought of today's episode and stories via email at holystarwars at and on Twitter at holy__star__wars, and on our newly renovated website, holystarwars.net. And also... If there's parts of the story that I missed and that you think I should make sure to cover in the next two weeks when we go back into the story again, you know whether it's from this discussion about Nora and Temin or it's part of the book as a whole because there's so much more to this book than just their relationship, let us know what those things are that you want to have covered in the next two weeks. Next week we're going to be continuing on with Aftermath, the book and along the book, not the theme, and we're also going to be looking at the Yoruba creation myth. The Yoruba people are uh, an indigenous ethnic group of... Uh, from mostly Nigeria and, this, and a little bit in Benin. But they're also a super interesting people with a really, really deep religious uh, re- religion that I've been really interested in having read about. So definitely look up on them in, in advance of the show, and we'll be talking about the creation myth next week. Thanks for listening.